Beautiful. Okay, cool. So we should be live. Um, same as always, if you can give us some kind of indication that you can hear us on the um, on uh, sort of the chat there, that'd be great. Um, just so we're not sure that we're talking to ourselves. But uh, without sort of further ado, we're going to get sort of stuck into tonight's topic. Normally, we do uh, sort yeah, of a brief good. introduction for everyone. Yeah, sorry, a brief introduction for everyone. Uh, but um, we kind of already have had um, both Captain Locke and Econ Gamer on the channel before. Um, so I'll just introduce you guys for anyone that might be new to the live streams. Uh, Captain Locke, uh, his background is in teaching, uh, has a lot of insight into the world of um, you know, mathematics specifically, but also uh, business economics. Um, so very, very intelligent individual with a lot of insight, especially when it comes to uh, a lot of the empirical hardcore uh, you know, data-driven stuff, which is, you know, always really fantastic insight to have. Uh, Econ Gamer actually has uh, his own channel that, that looks specifically at a few economic factors as well as a blog. So uh, I think he's going to post that in the YouTube live comments. Um, so go check out his stuff. Uh, again, obviously a very intelligent individual with a lot of stuff to uh, contribute here, which is great because the discussions that we're going to be having are, um, you know, really interesting ones this week. So... At the, um, the current time, the, the two topics that we're going to be looking at are, are Adam Smith, you know, sort of, I suppose, the father or the grandfather or, you know, the, the alpha and omega of economics, um, which, you know, is, is obviously um, pretty loaded in the sense of, of how much he kind of added to, um, well, I suppose, a, an academic discipline that he practically created. Um, and then... Uh, one of the um, bigger ones is probably one of the more controversial videos, surprisingly, that we, we've ever made on the channel, uh, which was an exploration of why colder countries are, um, you know, richer than hotter countries. So uh, we're going to go kind of delve into, um, you know, a lot of the, the comments and concerns and questions that people had about that that maybe weren't covered in the video that was uh, still one of the shorter videos. So perhaps there's um, some room for nuance here that we can discuss and uh yeah and i think it's going to be a really fun topic anyway because it's one of these sort of hypotheticals where you have to um you know really explore what seems like such a simple question uh from from all ends of the spectrum you know both today and throughout history so without that um we will get into adam smith um, because i don't think he's going to take up nearly as much time as um as probably the the, the big more hot button uh, topic for today's video so I'm hoping that most people watching this, or actually everybody watching this at the moment, um, has seen uh, the video on Adam Smith uh, and has... Oh, and we're going to add G to the stream here as well. Uh, I hope you've seen the video on Adam Smith, G, because that's what we're talking about right now. Oh, yeah, um, so it's really good. Excellent. There we go. Cool, cool, cool. Um, I, I would have introduced you, but you're late, so yeah. It's, it's fine. It's fine. Um, plus, we, we only need to wheel you out when it comes to the second part, which is the statistics, yeah, statistics anyway. Um, beautiful. So um, the big, uh, I suppose, takeaway there was a new way of looking at the modern world uh, or, you know, how a global economy worked. Now, uh, we did explore it and we have explored mercantilism before, but this was the prevailing uh, ideology of the world, you know, for, for most of human history, the idea that, um, wealth is derived, you know, national wealth is derived by by hoarding whatever the store of value is. Uh, in that case, it was, you know, gold for most of human history and 
uh, the, the systems of mankind revolve around the idea that he who has the gold um, holds the power. And in many ways, uh, that was sort of true. Uh, the, the world back then, um, you know, had very, very, very limited uh, national trade, sorry, international trade. It was um, sort of almost built on, you know, a foundation of, of strong self-sufficiency, um, you know, even on, on sort of a community level, uh, let alone a, a national level. Um, but that was something that didn't last forever. Now, I suppose one of the big arguments in the video was um, the fact that, you know, the, the shift in ideology away from this mercantilist view of um, because I'm winning, someone else has to lose to, hey, you know, uh, we can make mutually beneficial business happen here um, was probably one of the most significant things that kind of led to, uh, you know, the prosperity that we enjoy today. Maybe uh, as significant as, you know, the advent of, well, not the advent, but the, the widespread use of the steam engine uh, and, and industrialization, railroads, uh, a lot of the technical innovations that we tend to point to, uh, the rapid growth during the Industrial Revolution that's kind of projectiled us into the modern world that we enjoy today. Now, that's a pretty loaded statement to make, uh, but would anyone, I don't know, would, would anyone disagree with that or is, does anyone think it was sort of significantly less important or you know, perhaps more important? It was, um, does anyone sort of, I'll start with you, Locke. You, you, uh, you always have an opinion about this kind of stuff. So this one time, I might not really have that grave an opinion. Um, it's, I mean, like the, the only other thing I could think of uh besides the end of mercantilism is just generally the increase of efficiency the increase of population at this time um you know this it's really hard for historians to to point to one thing as ah oh, this is the thing that really caused it uh it's a great story to always have to be able to identify that one thing uh and then call it a day but reality is way more complex than that. And there are a lot of moving factors. It's definitely part of it. It's definitely part of the picture. Um, mm -hmm. And did it cause the industrial revolution? I would argue no. Um, one of the theories that I've heard about the, the advent of uh, the industrial revolution was uh, the machining of, I believe it's, uh, it's the tool that um, where if you spin uh an object a around a lathe yeah and the machining of the lathe to create other lathes uh so that's you can it's like there's a fantastic video i've seen that perfectly you know uh explains how the lathe was was so instrumental and then having a machine lathe was much more revolution what was just a, a it kind of compounded on itself you it, know, it you did could, you, yeah. could, you could make machines that made machines exactly uh, and, and yeah of course that's sort of looking at it from the technical um aspects of um you know the actual technology that's driving innovation and and i think that's fair look um i think it, it, i think it was ultimately sort of chicken and the egg um a lot of the technical innovation was absolutely fantastic but it probably wouldn't have meant that much um, or it wouldn't have been quite as, um, you know, widespread and quickly adopted had it not been for, um, you know, these new ideals in, in how you can run, uh, you know, a country, you know, how we can sort of embrace good governance. Uh, because also it has to be remembered in this time around the world, 
Um, not only were we sort of, uh, you know, on the, on the cusp of an, you know, an industrial revolution, but, you know, uh, France was, was revolting and, um, you know, so. Uh, there was so a lot America. going on at the time. It was quite yeah, literally a revolutionary period. Yeah. So they were really sort of tossing up what, you know, what good government meant, what good economic management meant, um, and, you know, what, um, you know, what industry meant, what, what was it that, that drove wealth? You know, no longer was it going to be, uh, you know, how many people can you put out there in the farms? It was maybe, hey, you know, this, uh, you know, these new textile mills or, um, you know, these new whatevers that we're making could be um, the secret to actually sort of genuinely being the power in the world as opposed to just, you know, selling more grain than, than our neighbours to hoard more gold so that we can raise a bigger army, so that we can take more land, so that we can farm more wheat. Uh, to do the, the same thing all over again, um, which, you know, obviously that's a vast oversimplification, but, um, you know, it wasn't too far from the reality that drove nations for thousands of years. Now, the Jesus Insight had a really good question. Uh, do we still see mercantilism today? Uh, and does it still have any useful ideas slash aspects? Uh, it's a really, really interesting question because, in a sense, no, no one's going to say, um, I don't, well, I mean, maybe people would, but I, I doubt that anyone's going to step forward and say, you know, I'm a, I'm a mercantilist. I, I believe that, you know, we should be hoarding uh, this, that, or anything else um, because that's the secret to, to true prosperity. Um, but there are still, like, you know, everything sort of exists along a, a spectrum, I suppose. Uh, and there are still sort of ideologies that, that you know, are, kind of, I suppose, semi-mercantilist in nature. Uh, one of the big ones is, of course, you know, when we're talking about trade and trade wars and, um, you know, how people are uh, artificially giving themselves an advantage to export more than they import. And, you know, it's a huge one. Um, so it could be argued that a lot of the protectionist policies, you know, tariffs, uh, you know, uh, import taxes, quotas, things like that, um, have a lot of mercantilist roots because they sort of see uh, that, hey, um, you know, if we're, I don't know, if we're the USA and we're uh, importing everything that we, you know, touch uh, from China and China's not importing any of our stuff, uh, well, eventually, you know, they're going to hoard a lot of our national currency and that's going to give them a lot of power and influence and, uh, you know, we're going to be poor and our manufacturing is going to go overseas. It's probably, it could be argued that it, maybe it's a mercantilist ideology with a few more steps. Um, I don't know. Well, what are your what are your thoughts on on that? Anyone? Sure, I'll I'll jump in there. Um, and first, I'm gonna address the original question. And what I think is incredibly interesting is how mercantilism makes a lot more mercantilism makes a lot more sense when you consider how back in you know hundreds of years ago there wasn't much of a comparative advantage that you could have. Um, so I don't know how many people have listened to Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway annual meetings, but he often talks about how, you know, hundreds of years ago, if he was significantly smarter than the person next to him, all that meant was a pretty minor increase in the standard of living. So it wasn't really worthwhile to be exceptional like it is today where you can specialize. So when you put into that context, mercantilism really just means that you're not going to increase your wealth that much from doing comparative advantage, but you will increase the saving rate. So when you want to go to war, it's like you've stockpiled all this stuff. 
So now you can go and take someone else over. So your power actually increases. So when you put in the context of the limited comparative advantage that existed prior to the Industrial Revolution, it actually makes a lot of sense why that would be a favored uh, economic model in a sense. Uh, now, I'm sorry, what was your, what was the second question, E? I forgot. Oh, it's, it's the one there up on the screen. Uh, do you still see mercantilism today in sort of any form, given that it's, you know, sort of widely accepted as a relatively outdated theory? Oh, yeah. The, uh, I mean, I, I agree with you. It's mostly trade wars, um, currency manipulation. But it, minus the, the trade wars, the currency manipulation and subsidization isn't, I, I don't consider that necessarily a bad thing because it's really just another country subsidizing other people's standard of living. So uh, it's really just in terms of trade wars. I think it's, I guess, destructive. Yeah, it, it goes by another name today. It's called protectionism. But, um, you know, it, it's a much more watered down version of, you know, probably that ideology that, that ruled the world um, from back then. And, it, you know, hey, you know, maybe it's just today that we, we know better than, than, you know, relying on that because it, it isn't what leads to um, the most prosperity for, you know, for humankind, which hopefully... Uh, and I say this is a big, big sort of leap of faith here. Um, hopefully that's what our sort of world leaders and the power that be are uh, at least partially working towards. Uh, I could be wrong there, but but who knows? Now, there's one other thing. Um, so I would say play, that there are, ahead. we do see occasional instances of, of uh, mercantilism uh, today with, but, but okay, when I, when I say this, I want to uh, preface this with the fact that mercantile, uh, mercantilism today is nowhere near to the level that it used to be in, in historical context. Uh, they are, we're comparing apples and oranges these days. We're just using the word, uh, but some of the places that we have uh, seen like the practices of uh, mercantilism today are in like, you know, starting up infant industries. Uh, so Japan was, uh, in post uh, World War II, was notorious for doing this with with the government uh, basically funding uh, these these growing industries to the point that they uh, could outcompete uh, any international competitors. Um, and in the free market, they would not have gotten that funding. They would not have uh, gotten that ability to. Uh, I wouldn't say create a monopoly, but uh, create a uh, a stranglehold on uh, the overall uh, market. And there also is the argument that the only reason why they can uh, have a stranglehold over the market is because their innovation was so good, and you know Japanese cars are infinitely better than American cars, or as the saying goes. Uh, but in in that sense, uh, that would be an example of uh, mercantilism today. I mean, I guess, are more recent historical examples. Uh, you can look for uh, things that have, you know, similar uh, characteristics to that, and then you could identify those as saying, ah, yeah, that's that's mercantilism. That's an example right there, or it's not. And actually, um, now that I think about it, we see a lot more mercantilism less in economic activity and more in mercantilism of information slash ideas. Um, and by that, I mean, see a lot of the countries that are very protectionist. I mean, Japan for the longest time made a note of 
making sure that other countries' ideals couldn't get into the country. Uh, you see that even persisting with the corporate governance and executive leadership. Uh, same with China. They're very big on preventing the flow of information inwards, but ensuring the flow of information outwards, right? So the exporters of the propaganda, but not importers of other people's ideas, right? So I think in that sense, we still do see mercantilism, but it's just not purely economic. It's more information-based, uh, which I think makes a lot of sense given the different countries' uh, political incentives. Yeah, and, and mercantilism often stems at the end of the day from the powers that be within the nation. Uh, within Europe, you know, the king or the nobility was the authority, and their uh, primary threat to their power and their throne uh, came from other powers. Uh, so you wanted to isolate yourself and and build up your own wealth to protect against you know powers that would otherwise dethrone you. Uh, that's not to say that you know a king didn't or didn't have to you know worry about uh, those beneath him. Absolutely, they did. But uh, in general, uh, it was part of their uh, their strategy of how do I hold on to my throne for as long as possible, and this was a tried and tested method to uh, making sure uh, that you stayed on the throne. Yeah, I mean that's a that's an interesting. Um, yeah, it's an interesting uh, thing that you add for, from both ends, and um, and thanks for uh, thanks for the add of of the Warren Buffett sort of message as well. I think that was a kind of really unique insight into, um, you know, perhaps the the shortcomings. Um, now, Jesus Insider was really good at asking questions because there's one thing um, that I just sort of thought of here, um, and it'd be really interesting. Now, I don't necessarily agree with this statement 100, but um, it's an interesting sort of thing to to, to ponder. Um, now, one of the um, key tenets of mercantilism was the idea that uh, the world was basically a zero-sum game. If someone else was winning, someone else was losing. There's only so much wealth and prosperity that the world can give, and it's up to you know the powers that be to go out and get it and claim that as their own. That is, of course, you know, sort of a you know with modern industry and, and wealth creation, something that we don't necessarily subscribe to anymore, but here is um, something that you probably would have heard, um, you know, especially uh, I think it's become a very, very hot button issue in the United States, especially around, you know, let's say the 2020 election. Um, a lot of very famous politicians have been quoted as saying uh, no one makes a billion dollars. They take a billion dollars. Uh, there's the ideal that, um, you know, extremely wealthy individuals in society have somehow stolen that wealth, be it from... Uh, you know, taking advantage of of low skilled or um, you know workers without uh, a union or workers that don't have that much bargaining power, um, or it is such that they've taken advantage of it by stealing people's information. Uh, the sense that they haven't actually genuinely created uh, wealth of a billion dollars, they have uh, they have taken that in some way off something else or taken that somehow out of another area of an economy. Uh, you know, be it maliciously or just by the virtue of the industry that they're running. Now, what would your, that, um, I'm sure you guys have all heard that. Uh, I'm sure you've all heard that sort of ideology. And look, to be honest, I, in some instances, don't necessarily disagree with it. 
Um, but would that not be something that's very akin to, to mercantilism, um, but just sort of uh, pushed onto uh, an individual level or a corporate level? What, are, what would you sort of say about that? You know, anyone feel free to sort of pipe up? Uh, I, I would say that they're, the idea that all billionaires or anyone who makes money you know, got there on the backs of other people is true, uh, but that they stole that money from other people, uh, I would say that there's only a percentage of, of that. And, and I'm talking even like, you know, uh, a billionaire who's earned their money through generating something completely new that has, uh, you know, revolutionized something and created a real tangible product. Um, you know, at the end of the day, some of their uh, wealth is going to be uh, come at the expense of other people. Maybe they're overcharging or uh, they have screwed over their laborers in some way. But in the general term, the, the majority of that wealth uh, was not stolen. It was uh, it was, in, in fact, uh, really created or people were willing to part with their own wealth to have this new service uh, that that they provided. Uh, now, that's not to say that they are blameless uh, because uh, if I'm being honest, business is, is can be competitive. And um, uh, oftentimes uh, it, it's, it, it's a lot easier to, you know, pay uh, your employee a thousand dollars less than what they're actually worth. And then accrue, you know, uh, do that over the course of all of your employees. And now you've saved all that money. Uh, and no one, no one bats an eye, but the reality is like, that's, there is that, uh, in, in absolutely in that sense, yeah. and that's, that's, where also, it is. that's also making the assumption that if, you know, the, the employee is happy to take, you know, a, a wage that's a thousand dollars less and that's what the market's offering. Exactly. That, that is what they're worth. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, one of the things that I've thought about, like, if I'm a business owner is like, I have this guilty conscience of, I want to pay my employees exactly what they're worth. And, uh, you know, it's, it's yeah, at the same time, undercutting them. Like I know firsthand exactly. Like the, if I undercut them, that's more money for me. Yeah. And, and, yeah. Uh, I think there's the other thing that you have to um, consider with that is, is let's say, um, let's take a very simple business. Let's take a, a real estate agency. Okay. Um, the reason I chose a real estate agency is because um, the overheads are relatively low. Let's ignore the fact that they have to hire a shop and, you know, do all of that sort of stuff. Oh, actually, you know, let's throw that back in there. Um, now, a majority of the people that are working in a real estate agency are going to be are going to be real estate agents. Uh, they'll earn a uh, you know base salary, and and then a majority of their money comes from commissions when they sell a house. Um, I'm assuming that's how real estate agents work in most people's countries. But there's nothing too kind of wild with anything I just said there. No, great. No. Okay, cool. So. Here's where it gets interesting. How do you value an employee? Um, so if I'm the, the principal real estate agent in um, a, you know, in this little firm that I've just set up uh, and I employ, let's say, five other real estate agents, you know, normally they'll go out and they'll, they'll get business, they'll convince people to sell their home or, you know, they'll, they'll get people to choose them when they are selling their home and um, they will list the property. Um, let's say a property sells for half a million dollars. Normally, a real estate agent will make uh, like twenty to thirty thousand dollars on that, um, depending on depending on the market, depending on the conditions, depending on um, you know uh, a range of sort of factors. So, if they are um, making twenty or thirty thousand um, dollars, is that employee then worth twenty thousand um, dollars? 
I would argue uh, no, because there are still considerations there. You as the principal, the owner of that real estate agency had to pay for the store front and you had to pay for the marketing to, um, you know, advertise the property that's got, got sold. Uh, you also took upon the risk that, hey, you know, if we hire a whole lot of real estate agents and they don't sell any properties, we've still got to pay them a base salary. Um, so there is something to say, well, okay, um, even if, you know, let's say I hire you, uh, Captain Locke, and, and you go out and sell you know, $10 million worth of properties in a year, and you bring in half a million dollars worth of commissions, I'd be like, you beauty, no worries. Good on you, Locke. Yeah. And you could turn around and say, hey, I'm worth I'm worth half a million dollars a year to this company. I'd be like, well, yeah, you know, that makes sense. But also you have to consider that I'm, I'm sort of taking a risk here. So there's that. I'm also in business. So in a sense, I kind of want to also you know, make some money for myself. Um, the effort that I put into making you as prosperous as you are um, doesn't necessarily go unchecked. Um, you know, I give you a place to come into work. I, you know, kind of give you the security of a base wage. Um, there's a lot of moving factors there that mean that, hey, you know, while you are bringing in $500,000 into the business, you aren't necessarily worth that yeah, much. Of there's course. Yeah. And what that gap is, um, is like, I mean, that's really loose and it's really hard to determine. Now, with a real estate agent, that's, it's very, very simple. Um, you know, obviously you can negotiate a split of commission, right? Uh, it's a very simple equation, but that's where it's, that, that's probably the most obvious example of how much an individual employee is worth of business. If you then look at, let's say, an Amazon store employee, that's uh, sorry, like a warehouse employee, um, you know, they could be responsible for, um, you know, tens of millions of dollars worth of merchandise in any given day for, you know, all the processing, packing and picking that they do. Um, I don't know if that's realistic. But yeah, no, I, but it's it's up there. It's I mean, it's a... They, they would handle a lot of shit. Yeah, they uh, do. Uh, and, I, I'm, and, off the top of my head, at least $10,000 a day. I would argue a lot minimal, more. You know, they, the minimal, they, they, touch, yeah. they touch 10 iPhones and that's their that's already true. being there. Yeah. Uh, and I, I know those guys, they, they, they hustle. Um, but it's a lot more abstract as to how much profit that individual person is contributing to the business you know especially when you consider for a long time you know the actual sort of uh online retail aspect of, of amazon didn't even make money so it's like well, what is it actually worth and it's easy to sort of say okay well you know jeff bezos has become uh, a multi multi-billionaire he's worth hundreds of billions of dollars um while you know he hasn't even sort of paid his employees 15 dollars an hour um but it's also very, very difficult so so the logical assumption is okay well He's got wealthier by making the world poorer. He's taken that from something else. He hasn't created anything. He's taken a majority of it. Mm -hmm. Maybe, you know, yeah. maybe maybe 50% of his wealth is something that he's created. He's created a, a new, more efficient way to shop online, a new, more efficient way for people to, to access products um, or, you know, start a website or whatever it may be. Uh, but 50% of that wealth is, you know, him um, being very clever at raising capital and being very good at screwing over workers. There could be an argument to be said for that, but you have to really sort of figure out a way that you genuinely price workers. Yeah, um, and that's that's job of an economist. Yeah, one of the jobs. Yeah, I mean, or job of the free markets. It's also job of free markets. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you know, <laughs> Van Van Ivanov uh, said, "To be honest, stealing billions of dollars would be pretty difficult." Dot dot dot. Unless you're a bank, winky face. Oof. Uh, yeah. 
you know, you're probably not wrong. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it's a really, really interesting aspect to, to look at, you know, and, and hey, you know, even if they are stealing billion dollars, uh, billions of dollars, you know, making some area of the economy poorer by making themselves richer, um, is that is that mercantilism? Um, or probably not. Or <laughs> probably not. US nothing to do with the mercantilism. <laughs> but it's an ass, you know, you can sort of see it has, has you know, um, aspects of it. Oh, uh, yeah, that, the right. It's, it's I said earlier the about the characteristics. Yeah. Yeah, it's assuming the world is a zero sum game. So, um, yeah, fantastic question, Jesus Insider. Um, thanks for doing that. That's, that was really great. Always All great right. questions from him. Yeah, then, absolutely. We then, should yeah. have you on sometime. But um, I am um going to look at the time and see that we've obviously been talking now for about half an hour um so i'm just going to type this up uh, wait are we actually going to make it to the second topic for once apparently yes. thing? Uh, <laughs> i'm going to keep talking about Adam smith i don't want to go on to the next topic uh, no 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 so um if i can spell the amount of times I've nearly said, why are cold countries richer than poor countries? Which obviously wouldn't make any sense. There we go. Beautiful. All right. So uh, Jesus Insider said he's blushing. Ah, well deserved. All right. So I think it's important that we get onto this one because I think it's going to take up a little bit more time. And, um, you know, we don't want these to drag out for much more than an hour. Obviously, you know, we want uh, quick, concise question and answers. And that's what we're here for. Um, so why are cold countries richer than hot countries? So again, I hope everyone watching this live stream has watched the video. It is a really interesting sort of topic. And um, it's one of those videos that I made where um, it was a really great excuse to kind of look into a few factors that make economies what they are. Um, realistically, it was an excuse to, well, maybe sneak a little bit of a statistics lesson in there. Um, this is where she's going to come into his own because uh, I don't know, he probably will school me on, on statistics. I love um, me some statistics. Yes, he loves him some statistics. Uh, and also, um, look, really sort of massive, you know, big picture, foundational level stuff of what it is that makes economies rich uh, and what it is that makes economies poor. Um, now, of course, you know, apparently the weather is some part of it, but it kind of, it, it's a really logical sort of way to go, well, okay, that's a bizarre reality. What is it that, you know, is causing that? Because, of course, you know, the weather itself isn't, you know, directly tied to, to cash flows or, um, you know, transactional spending or anything like that, there's got to be some sort of hidden, uh, you know, third layer in there. Um, and uh, obviously sort of one of the more, you know, sort of big picture um, links between weather um, and prosperity that we found was, was that of industry. You know, uh, cold countries were more industrious because they they needed to be they need to be more industrious to survive through harsher winters um, that were not nearly as conducive to human life as tropical or um, warmer areas uh, and they needed to be um, more industriousness because they were sort of forced to stay inside and not really do too much um, you know during those those things so maybe it was time for them to um, hey maybe it was time for them to, to sort of ponder you know how a water wheel might work or how a steam engine could operate. Uh, and these are the sort of prevailing theories. Now, one big thing I just, I think it should, hopefully it should go without saying, um, but it probably didn't, 
weirdly enough, so this video, uh, which is sort of a, a more like a fun little factoid video, in the same way that uh, Australia is an American company, it was kind of just like, it wasn't sort of looking too deeply at a huge macroeconomic topic or anything like that. It was kind of just like a fun little side thing. Uh, it was definitely uh, the most uh, controversial video that we've made in a while um, because I think people misconstrued it and maybe it was sort of even hijacked a bit uh, that people think we were trying to make some kind of correlation between uh, you know poverty being specifically in, in African countries or uh, you know countries with I don't know brown people in them and and that's um, literally the opposite of, of what we're trying to do. So for the record, I think um, hopefully it should go without saying that 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 wasn't any of our intentions, but, um, you know, I think a lot of people have kind of hijacked it to, to sort of make that narrative happen. Um, and, and literally, I mean, if you're looking at causal, um, you know, causal effects, it's absolutely not the case. That kind of assumption is literally the same as, you know, specifically what we were looking at um, when we looked at, uh, you know, uh, correlation, not necessarily equaling causation. Um, we looked at the ice cream and the drownings example uh, such an example would be the same when you know these these silly silly people have hijacked it to say that you know people from these countries are just you know uh you know naturally less conducive to doing well for themselves um it, it just it just isn't the case and and obviously the logical sort of um you know middleman there is uh you know hot countries uh, just have people with dark skin I, I would, that naturally I, that's how it, that, that's how it happens this video uh, was more akin to a half as interesting uh, video. Uh, we're very much approaching uh, what Sam is doing with that respect with, with this video. Uh, I remember E telling me about this, and it's you know he was sounded super excited, uh, saying, "Oh, this would be a fun fun video to have." And in the back of my mind, I was like, "Yeah," and then up front, I was like, "Are you sure? Are you sure?" Uh, uh, I know this is this might cause. I, I, I still think it. I still think it was. Uh, I still think it was a very very good video, uh, and 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 purely for the reason that it let us explore some interesting topics. But look, obviously we just have to get that out of the way. I think it was a very very small majority majority of people, and and I'm really always just happy to see that they just kind of got downvoted in the comments and they didn't bubble up to the surface. But uh, it's a little bit disheartening to see, you know, just just absolute just morons um, sort of saying stuff like this, but. Uh, but anyway, we're not, we're not going to dwell on that. Um, we're going to get sort of stuck into, um, you know, the ideas there. So uh, let's start with um, uh, the statistics because uh, this is why we this is why we wheeled she out of his you know special padded cell to to come in here. <laughs> yeah, um, because he's a wizard statistics and um, and looking at the uh, sort of data like uh, this this wasn't something that was, you know overly complicated um we just looked at a single year's worth of gdp per capita that same year's average temperature um yeah. did a progression and, and sort of found our results so i don't think there's anything too much there but um as sort of the statistics weirs is there anything that you would have done differently or anything that you want to add to um sort of what we found in the video i mean you you could look over a longer time period nearly every statistician would tell you um more data equals a you know, a better reflection. Hmm. Um, also, you could, I, I'd suggest um, if you included other variables that, you know, would have been slightly more, like it, hot and cold is like a good, a good, what do you call it, example, but you could use other variables such as, you know, um, a binary variable if someone says has uh, freedom of trade in their country. Um, 
oh, that would have been a very easy one to put in there. Institutions. Yeah, like other effects like that, and you could use statistical methods um, to you know, just jam that into a multilinear regression, and you know, the the uh, I'm can I don't understand why anybody would be annoyed at anything else in the video other than the the numbers. Oh, you didn't say if you what data you used. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, I actually. Hell, normally I put a, uh, a source list in there and I did have it. Yeah. It's like, uh, it's like respective, like there's some international bureau, uh, bureau of meteorology and then IMF figures. Um, yeah. You know, they're, they're relatively consistent. Um, but I mean, even so, I think you can probably use, uh, even though like world bank and IMF figures, um, you know, world trade organization figures might differ. Um, I think the results you're going to get a yeah. pretty similar. Um, and and yeah, it's an interesting sort of thing that you, you spoke about there with like adding in um, those extra extra sort of factors that you normally think are more typical of um, you know what leads to prosperity and what doesn't um, because I think obviously if we did add those you know if we add freedom of trade um, you know let's say uh, are they a, a democracy yes or no or um, are they you know landlocked or something like that things things yeah. that you know, can um you know, impact it. Are, are they have they been subject to a war in the past 10 years things yeah there's like a, that. when i was doing uh state building um at king's college uh we looked at centralization as one of the key drivers of a nation's like well i would say wealth the, the course was wars, wealth, and welfare. Uh, one of the interesting things we looked at was uh, centralization because of war planning. <laughs> so we looked at the example of, of France uh, and the development of, of France uh, post uh, 1700. And we saw that a lot, I mean, France was hugely centralized around Paris. Uh, everything needed to be connected towards Paris. Uh, and this created a centralization. Uh, and we looked at other countries that didn't have this and how they fared. Uh, and it, it's not that like, oh, this is one of the things, like this is the thing we need to look for. Like I've been saying for this podcast, uh, it's never one thing, but it was, that was something that we you could have had in there. Centralization oftentimes is, a, is an important thing to keep in mind. Also, uh, a fun one which you could have done, which I love to use the example of number of Starbucks in a country. Um, yeah. Yeah, typically, if you have a lot of Starbucks in your country, you'll be doing pretty well for yourself. But uh, isn't that a classic example of, of correlation? Not necessarily you can really cause it. Exactly. Rather, rather exactly. it be the wrong way around, you know. Um, obviously, a wealthy country is going to naturally be able to support more Starbucks because people have more disposable income. Uh, and that's that's probably a good one because I didn't actually I didn't actually uh, touch on that. I, I looked at sort of spurious correlations, correlations that you know are in line, but um, you know were not sort of a cause or effect of either either or of each other. Um, but also looking at correlations that are more so um, you know what you're trying to find is actually the cause of of some of the data that you're using. Yeah. Um, I think that's really interesting because obviously if we put in more statistics and let's say it, it genuinely is statistics that um, would add to a nation's prosperity, things like, you know, national debt, uh, national credit rating, uh, balance of trade, things like that, you know, stuff that you, you genuinely go, oh, yeah, this is this is the kind of stuff that would make you a country richer. Um, we, we would get a larger R squared. Um, and again, statisticians, they have a way of 
making everything sound more complicated than it is, but basically our model would show a, a greater percentage of um, everything that goes into explaining this particular model. Uh, now, as a sort of uh, as a sort of statistician, um, tell me, just because uh, you know we found that you know the R squared for our particular model, which was basically just you know two sets of figures, um, does that necessarily mean anything bad? Would we be better off you know throwing in a whole lot of extra stuff just to get a higher R squared figure if, if all we're trying to answer is that one question? Uh, you cannot. So there are a lot of assumptions which go into modeling nearly anything. There are lots of um, uh, things you might want to look at and look and check for your error. Um, for example, there are things such as serial autocorrelation and heteroscedasticity. Scedasticity. Yeah, statisticians can't name anything. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but what do you call it? We have these like um, conditions which, if they meet, that means your you know your model might be very good at predicting things. And if your model doesn't hit on those things, then you will have issues further down the line. Um, and an R squared is one indicator of um, that kind of thing, but it's not the be end and end all. Um, yep. If I have if I have five variables and I get a really nice R squared, but one of those variables is not significant, I'd be better off taking out that um, that variable, because yep. um, when you have three or four variables to determine one thing. If you can, if you can like make a reasonable assumption, well, this one really isn't contributing much to this model, you just take it out. You want a simple model rather than a, an expensive one. Um, and that's why it's better to look at each t-stat for each individual variable within the model than just the aggregate r-squared. Yeah, which I think uh, in, in plain English, um, and you know, obviously keeping in mind that, that most people aren't statistics whizzes like, like you are, um, there's, there's, you know, there's this, this R squared variable that statisticians really love because it helps to explain how much of a certain outcome is explained by the variables that you're looking at. So a higher R squared is, is normally seen as better, uh, but she was absolutely right in the sense that let's say we were trying to predict um, if it was going to rain tomorrow. Now we could look at things that are, you know, probably very statistically significant. Um, was it raining today? What is the humidity in the air? What's the temperature outside? Are we close to the ocean? Um, you know, I don't know what goes into the weather, but stuff like that. Um, but you get the idea. You know, we could look at a few variables that we can measure now that would help predict the future. Um, and, you know, look, if we just looked at, let's say, humidity, uh, if it's running today, and what the temperature is outside, we might be able to get, uh, you know, an R squared of... 20%, you know, 20% of whether or not it's rain tomorrow, will rain tomorrow was explained by these three factors. But that means there's still 80% out there that's explained by something else, whatever it is that makes rain happen. Um, now you could theoretically just keep on going and going and going and adding more things in. Um, was it raining the day before? Uh, are we in a mountainous area? What's our elevation? Uh, what was our, what's our latitude? What season are we in? Um, is... Captain Locke wearing a box on his head for some reason. I'm uh, always wearing a box on my head. You know, how many lightning strikes happened in a particular day? Um, what was the sale of, of you know, um, shoes or the day before? Just keep on adding stuff that, you know, so maybe some of it's relevant, maybe something, some of it's just, just completely useless. Um, you know, absolutely sort of silly, silly stuff. Um, and eventually you would keep on increasing that R squared 
even if something was completely just completely irrelevant um let's say uh, we're trying to predict if it's raining tomorrow and we add um the idea of uh did donald trump tweet about china uh, on that day there's absolutely no way that donald trump's tweet is going to cause rain tomorrow but we might find that historically there's been some kind of correlation between his tweets and rain and if it's even the slightest bit of correlation well it's going to add to your r squared so it kind of is the sense that you can keep on getting a higher and higher r squared by just adding a, a lot of variables uh, so it's not necessarily the be all and end all uh, so hopefully that makes sense and hopefully i didn't completely butcher that explanation but am i completely incorrect there she you know feel free to school me if i am so yeah if, if you just keep adding random data points um and then you regress them against um your dependent variable being weather or anything else um each time you add a, a set of data to regress against uh, a, a multi-linear regression which is you just included more and more and more that coefficient that it spits out um, is going to be rather very, very um, significant. It will have its own t-stat value um, or p-value, um, and you can determine if that variable is, you know, determining if there is a genuine connection to your dependent variable. If that t-stat is very, very good, like if it has a t-stat of like twenty, like it's like it's like the p-value. If if you have what do you call it a T set of twenty, then yes, there's a very good indicator. It's probably very very much correlated. But again, if you you can just keep adding data, but there are it, it you can't just keep adding data all the time. Data for data's sake is like well, data for data's sake. Yeah, you've got to be yeah, it also becomes a lot of it is just is just kind of useless as well in the sense that it's going to cost you money to go out and collect yeah. some of this data and, and time to feed it into a machine and uh, and you know hey maybe even if it is slightly relevant um, you know just the, the key thing is what insight did it give you? Yeah, it's like oh I have so much freaking data but now I have to like parse through where the insights actually coming from. Oh what's my insight? Uh, oh I have more data. Oh that's not really helpful. Oh. Yeah. Um, so this, this obviously, that's the uh, statistics side of it out of the way. Uh, and that gets us on to, I suppose, the fun conversation, which is, yeah. So why is it? Look, this, the correlation does exist. It's relatively significant. And it explains a good portion of a country's wealth. Um, it is a causal effect because, you know, it's, it's logical to assume that obviously the weather was around before um, economies were. So it's not one of those things where a, a rich country can cause cold weather. Uh, it doesn't work like that, um, unless I'm completely sort of misunderstanding how weather works, which, hey, maybe I am. I, I showed that I have absolutely no idea what causes rain. Um, but I think most people would agree um, that, you know, it's, it's I think, I think Donald Trump around. tweeting now causes rain. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, he'd, probably, he'd probably believe so. Uh, but, yeah, so, look, obviously the big sort of um, theory that, that's been most commonly presented when this has been explored, and it hasn't been explored very much, um, is that colder countries were kind of forced into being industrious. If countries... You know, maybe even through a sort of a you know weird sort of you know economic Darwinism. Uh, as much as I hate that that turn of phrase, is hey, if you weren't uh, an industrious sort of uh, village or country or society, um, you would not make it through winters. You'd freeze, or uh, you know perhaps you'd get the hell out of there and, and go find something that's more conducive to human life rather than I don't know the the tundra of Norway. Um, so 
is there any other sort of insight that, that anyone would like to add? I think someone earlier yeah. had a really good. Yeah, go ahead. I've uh, actually got an alternative theory um, on that one, um, and it's more rooted in psychology. So part of it is right. If you live in the cold com- country, then winter comes, which means that you now have to huddle together with multiple other people. If you have to huddle together with multiple other people, it means that you got to make sure that you guys don't kill each other within three to six months of being in close proximity to each other, which essentially means that you have to learn to trust of those around you. And there is there have been psychological studies that, that have been done that correlate trust to uh, temperate environments. And trust is also a key factor as part of a causation in both property rights and political stability. Uh, so I think what's really happening is the decrease in economic productivity is a result of political instability, which is a result of a lack of trust, uh, which of course decreases property rights, which makes it more likely for uh, conflict in a destabilized environment to occur. Um, so I think what it really comes down to is your ability to trust the person beside you or more so whether or not you have to to survive, whether that not that was ingrained in society going forwards. Yeah, we did, t- we did touch on that in that video. And, and obviously having sort of the ability to work cooperatively with one another, um, you know, to, hey, you know, sort of coexist peacefully for six months in a confined space or, um, you know, build the sort of things that you'd need to get through the winter um, is absolutely really conducive to, you know, what, what drives global industry today, which is business deals and, um, you know, handshake agreements and, you know, um, you know, making sales and, 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 you know, sort of really sort of dealing productively with, with other humans. Uh, actually, just before we get Captain Locke's opinion on it, a little tangent, uh, Rashmi from the comment section asked this question. I did want to touch on it because it's kind of interesting. Uh, another correlation is that rich and developed countries have more health issues than developing countries. Um, so with that, I, I'm not entirely sure of what sort of data set that you've been looking at there. Um, but if it is the case where, you know, let's say they have a high instances of certain diseases, I'd say things like heart disease, um, that's more of a, um, you know, uh, a correlation in, in the opposite direction in the sense that um, people from wealthy countries, let's take the United States, um, have the opportunity to, to be relatively sedentary in a majority of their jobs, you know, be it office workers or service workers, things like that. Um, and they have access to, you know, a lot of food that has uh, very high caloric uh, conditions. And also, um, you know, they tend to live relatively long and, and healthy, prosperous lives for the most part, which means that they do eventually get to to old age where they, you know, develop these sort of diseases that are sort of like I, that. I would also, but, you know, the difference in, in age gap between, uh, quote, developing nations and... Uh, you know, developed nations isn't that large of a gap uh, that it would create that many more health issues. I think one of the things that uh, developing developed nations have uh, is the medicalization of health. Um, that's the idea that since we have the resources to address every minor uh, issue at hand, why not do that? Why not throw money at it? Uh, and that means by nature, we will have more health issues. That doesn't mean that uh, people uh, in, in developing countries don't have these the same issues. In fact, they do. Um, we've seen time and time again uh, that 
you know, the conditions of, of, you know, people in developed nations are pretty much the same as people, uh, the condition, health conditions as, or the, the, you know, health issues that arise in uh, developing nations. It's, it's the whole thing of uh, we don't service the developed nations as much. Uh, therefore, statistically, developed nations have higher amounts. Uh, she did note here that she was talking about the obesity index. And, yeah, okay. and again, it's uh, rich countries. You have uh, absolutely. More yeah. Food, okay. More the, the obesity, obesity index. Never mind. Take everything I just said, throw it out the window because the obesity does not apply at all for the obesity index because uh, developed countries, yeah, we're obese. We're very obese. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, called uh, being fat and prosperous, I suppose. Um, but yeah, that's interesting. Now, sorry, I, I distracted you from um, that was a bit of a tangent. I just wanted to address it because it was an interesting question um, before your sort of thoughts and additional insight into to why it is that uh, cold countries are richer than hot countries, Locke. So, right. Uh, so I would say pure randomness, uh, historical randomness. That's where I'm coming from. So uh, as a um, like part-time historian i believe i read a lot um i've come to understand that uh, around the world uh there are a lot more interesting stories than just what we've heard from europe uh there are have been mighty nations and mighty empires all across the globe including in these quote developing countries um and, and so it, it's for the longest part of human history uh, it seemed it was purely random where uh, the development uh, came from. Um, and wealth, was, I wouldn't say wealth was evenly distributed, but it was uh, certainly more random. Uh, and that part had to do with war and uh, conquest, but also just the ebb and flow of, of civilizations you know, rising and falling. Um, but then the parts that we look at today are a very, very, very small section of the total amount of time that humans of, of human history. Uh, so, if it, if by chance uh, it, it just so happened that warm or colder countries developed faster, we also have to remember that development compounds on itself, and if they get if they get a head start of say 50 years that 50 years means a huge difference between uh them and other nations and so people then say well why didn't it you know why did it take say 50 years for uh, africa to get you know the machinery and that kind of stuff well in part uh because they didn't want to sell it to the to african countries um or to uh countries uh, around around the world uh, because they they viewed them as well this is just the historical record they viewed them as inferior and there was a lot of um chauvinistic uh, uh tendencies uh within uh, with within europe and the idea of, of european supremacy uh, and that stemmed a lot from, uh, you know, racial or racial misunderstanding or uh, uh, our inability to, you know, actually recognize that people from other parts of the world are actually the same species as us and are literally the same people. Um, there's that ugly history that we that often goes unmentioned. Yeah. And of course, that is one of those things that. Um... Yeah, it's, it's but, quite. But, uh, but getting back to my, but getting back to my yeah. thing. Uh, so we can we can just create a hypothetical scenario where uh, 
the Industrial Revolution didn't take place in uh, in Europe, but took place in Ghana. And uh, we would see, like, in the instance of uh, a compounding, a runaway compounding effect, uh, mm. where the current are are where in in that universe, like the African countries would be extremely more wealthy than the other parts of the world. And they have in effect the capital and the the resources to continue that uh, that uh, drive while everyone else will they won't catch up fully, they will eventually become developed and, and reach a point of, of 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 arguable like people the average person lives like kings. That's what people say these days. People, the average person lives like a king and, and honestly uh, they do. Um, yeah the average American um, probably lives better than a king yeah uh, did you know yeah, 200 years ago um and i think that that's a huge one and i really quite like that that insight that um you know hey maybe it was there was just some random spark somewhere you know some some you know egghead made the steam engine um or a water wheel or something like that and it just so happened to be in europe uh it was like completely random but in the same way that wealth begets wealth in our modern world and you know the wealthy get wealthier because they can invest and compound on the progress that they've already made um, technological progress begets technological progress. You know, the same as what you were talking about with the lathe earlier. It's much easier to make a lathe once you already have a lathe. It's much easier to make a steam engine once you already have a steam engine to make steam engines. So, um, you know, you can get a huge, you know, head start, especially if you're not in the business of sharing that innovation with, yeah. um, you know, other countries. And, now, and one of the things is when when these other countries would get these types of products, if they were, you know, mind-blowing, uh, like the first steam engine that japan got was a marvel for them it because it's it, it they never had anything before like that it also was extremely expensive for them uh hmm. because for everyone else it's just uh creating another steam engine that they are that uh like america has tons of steam engines but for japan it's like they don't have the materials to create a steam engine on their own they don't have the technical they don't have the technological understanding or the materials or at least the they might have the materials but they don't have the resources to put it all together um and so getting that first steam engine to then build all the other steam engines is a huge upfront cost hmm. now now an interesting sort of challenge i'd put to this theory that it was kind of random and then it kind of compounded on top of things is um is there's two uh there's two challenges i've put towards it now i'm not necessarily saying i'm disagreeing with you but i'd be interested to see what your thoughts would be on this um which number one is that for the longest time um and, and this is explored in the video warmer countries you know think of you know mesopotamia let's say the, the mines ancient egypt uh greece rome which primarily sort of congregated in, in, in india Rome, southern india, china Southern China, yep, um, they were far, far wealthier and more prosperous than these, you know, sort of, you know, let's say like the Nordic tribes in, um, or you know, let's say modern day Norway and, um, you know, like uh, European, you know, like yeah, our standard, of, our standard of England three, and, our standard four of of England, uh, France, Germany, and yeah, Italy. yeah. Germanic tribesmen were far less sophisticated and advanced than, you know, the Persians or the, the Egyptians. And that's just because 
Um, you know, realistically, it could be argued that it was just because of the weather. You know, they had to freaking they had to freaking battle for it, man. And while farming was the decider of wealth in the world, um, well, you know, hey, they they weren't going to be doing as well. Um, I don't know if you'd agree with that. Now, the, the challenge I put to you is if you have the idea that, um, hey, you know, any kind of head start compounds on itself, why why didn't these guys that had this head start, why didn't the Persians, why didn't the, uh, the Egyptians or the Greeks or the Mayans um, who had this head start compound on itself and why aren't, you know, um, you know why aren't we sort of living in a world um, like that today where, where these kind of nations had that head start? Uh, famine and externalities that were out of the perception of those Thank people. You, thanks, G, for saving me because I was like, uh, oh, that's a, that's a great." I mean, like, the, if if you like, what one bad season of crops essentially could wipe out uh, large portions and large areas. Could, of, it, could it not? Be, could it not? Could that? Would that not be a similar sort of burden borne by by colder countries? Would that not even? Yeah, be, yeah, I mean, it was more uh, prevalent in colder countries. No, because colder climates were ten, usually more at like farming's typically easier for substances such as wheat and such as like potatoes and stuff like that. Yeah, there's there's like, stability. Drought, which, drought potatoes, I, I do want to talk about potatoes here in a minute. We'll come back to it. <laughs> I, have a, I have a thing on potatoes. Actually, I'd also like to ask about you made a great point earlier about how much it takes to create the first steam engine. And there were some great points about how these other countries made some great technological innovations. I mean, I remember China was considered one of the predominant uh, technologically innovative countries back in the day. And with that being the case, I'm wondering if trade has a lot to do with it. I don't know a lot about ancient cultures' trade policies. Yeah, that's where I was going. <laughs> yeah, because right, Europe did a lot of trading within Europe. So if the steam engine was created it got pretty quickly diffused everywhere whereas that definitely didn't happen with some of the other countries that were around during that time period yeah uh, the, you can take it away. The, the vast majority of wealth uh for these other other nations southern nations came from uh trade like that was where their wealth uh came from and europe was not wealthy when it came to trade however what they were uh wealthy in was proximity to one another um, so if ideas are developed, they can easily spread, um, you know, the, you, you can look towards, uh, the, the Roman Christianization of, uh, or, you know, after Rome, uh, became, uh, a, a Christian, um, empire and then, you know, spread, uh, sent Christian missionaries literally to all the edges of, of the Roman empire. Uh, it was a very easy feat for them to do that and you know christianity spread very quickly um and i say very quickly as in you know in the span of 300 plus years uh which is in historical context very quick um but it, it the one thing uh that it, with, with modern like closer to modern day uh stuff when when the technologies are uh, invented they they're passed around very quickly and also there is this idea of the europeans preference for war uh they have because of pro close proximity and you know tensions there's always war which means that any innovation in war is going to uh quickly spread 
the adoption of of um, the cannons and then later uh, muskets was something that occurred overnight because it was obvious to uh, the to to um, uh, you know kingdoms that having these devices that could knock down a wall that were much better than a trebuchet and much more accurate and also more terrifying. Let's not, let's not even go into that, but um, you know, that they were clearly useful. Uh, and so they tasked people with, you know, working on these things. Uh, and then, but somebody asked, but isn't war mostly a function of the number of independent States? I, yes, like I'm, anyway, I, I, that's, uh, I'm, I'm about to get distracted. Um, so anyway, the, the one thing, and this is this is really touching on a ton of different things. So uh, I, I don't, I can't really point to one specific thing, but I will bring it back to the potato. So uh, oh, before you do, before you do, okay. all right, before you go on, before you uh, go on about your potatoes, there's one other one other challenge that I want to put towards your theory. All right, um, which is, you know, it ultimately boils down to the fact that um, hey, you know, somewhere in some you know, shack somewhere in the world, someone built the first. Uh, machine and that catapulted them into the uh, industrial revolution before anyone else and it just so happened um you know it happened in a colder country let's say england um now the other challenge that i put towards you is do you think that random spark was more likely to happen in a cold country or more likely to happen in a hot country and why um you know at first i would say like oh a colder country because you know being indoors quite a lot more and having nothing to do um but at the same time it's yeah, i mean like in the grand scheme of human history uh, there's a lot of opportunities for one person to uh do something that will revolutionize uh the rest of human history uh i think i feel like terry pratchett uh the author of Discworld, has has made jokes about this before that it could literally be anybody you especially when we're talking about such grand time scales that uh it's it honestly it does seem uh, purely random uh and every little innovation does uh compound on itself but you got to remember that on a small scale you know compounding doesn't it takes time to build up before the point where it's really noticeable uh mm -hmm. But uh, uh, I'm going to push you for an answer. Is it, is right. it, was it more likely to happen in a cold or a hot country? Uh, I'm indifferent. I honestly, I don't. Uh, so like my, my argument would be the advantages of, uh, of cold countries, obviously, they're inside more. They have more time to ponder you know, the meaning of the universe and, and what would happen if we pumped steam into a metal cylinder. Um, but obviously that's true. But warmer countries, countries, warmer countries had a lot would more have, people. Warmer countries, yeah, they had a lot more people and they also would have been more socialized like interacting more with one another more opportunities specialize as well yeah considering yeah. that you know like food was normally on aggregate a little bit more plentiful but um but uh that sort of leads us neatly onto potatoes so um for the next 10 minutes you have the floor talk to us about need, potatoes i don't need 10 uh, minutes i just need a couple minutes uh so the grand columbian exchange or the columbian exchange was the is a term that historians uh, used to describe uh, post-Columbus um, uh, uh, exploration to the Americas and the exchange of, of cultures, diseases, uh, flora, fauna, 
from one from the new world to the old world and from the old world to the new world uh one of the things that the old world greatly benefited from was the uh introduction of new uh food staples uh such as potatoes which turned out to be very effective at growing in european climates uh so much so that entire the european diets completely changed overnight when i say overnight i mean in the course of like you know, hundred years, but potatoes were quite literally revolutionary. Uh, and and if you go to Europe these days, the reason why potatoes are so uh, you know extensive throughout uh, you know the northern diets is because of their ability to grow in uh, these these types of climates. Additionally, they're also hugely uh, nutritionally uh, packed. Uh, there is actually a great Wikipedia article out there just talking about uh, the, uh, I think it's part of the Columbian Exchange uh, Wikipedia page, or it's part of just the potatoes Wikipedia page, but it basically talks about um, the nutritional value of potatoes. Um, and they're not the most, like, you know, uh, highest calorie per gram, but what they do have is their resistance to, uh, to climates. Um, and their ability to grow in very specific climates, especially the north, northern climates. And they're also easy to grow. Yeah, and they, they don't tend to break down quite as much, but there was, you yeah. know, things like potato famines. And stuff I do not like know. Uh, potatoes are popular in India. Oh, I, I mean, I know that they can grow literally everywhere. Um, but one of the things that, I mean... <laughs> they are effective but some of this uh like warmer climates they warmer climates can already support more uh nutritional or more energy dense uh, uh foods uh so it's more you know uh potatoes are a staple but they probably don't make up the majority of of the staples yeah does is there anyone who don't who doesn't like potatoes i i don't know honestly so. i mean our plan's pretty good so uh, it's open to it's open to everyone, uh, you know, especially you, Captain Lock. If you want to make a uh, channel called uh, Potatoes Explained, I'll yep. give you a shout out in the next video. Yeah. But the might, uh... but the the whole thing about potatoes is to bring back uh, the Columbian Exchange was quite uh, a monumental part of of history, and it's part of this, you know, the Renaissance. It's part of this. Uh, Europe expanding into new areas of the world. Um, I mean, Europe, Europe's uh, uh, desire for spices, uh, which we can talk about as well. That was, you know, something that led towards uh, um, that might have led towards uh, Europe uh, just becoming uh, the dominant power, and why, and then from extension, why European or why northern countries are are more uh, are wealthier than than uh, southern countries is that Europe desired these uh spices and and since they couldn't trade uh along uh the ottoman trade routes uh they had to find other ways and that meant uh exploring new lands and then if you're going to be exploring new lands you better come prepared to uh deal with uh the natives and it just so happens that uh firearms hadn't made their way into uh this uh in, in, into uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, or uh, a, a large part of, of um, well, generally, you know, I, I, the history of firearms is kind of lost on me. Uh, I, I'm not familiar with non-European 
firearms. I, I know cannons existed outside of Europe, but I'm curious to know if like, you know, muskets or musket style types of weapons uh, existed. Uh, it was, it was primarily like very like, like fireworks, rockets, things like that. It wasn't yeah. nearly as, um, it wasn't nearly quite as, you know, effective in, in theater of war as, as European cannons and muskets and things like that. Yeah. yeah. So, um, hey, you know, you know, maybe it's just, uh, hey, you know, there you go. Maybe, maybe they um, just so happened to make the first gun and it just went from there. Uh, it's an interesting one. Now, yeah, there's, that a, is, there's a Guns German Steel book, which as, I do not recommend to anyone. Yes, because, I do not recommend either. As a historian, yeah. it, there's a part time yeah, lot of, I do not recommend it. A lot of problems with that. Uh, it's it, very it's, problematic. It, it brings up some interesting ideologies and some interesting ideas, but, um, you know, to, to take it as gospel is, uh, you know, I, I was sort of tempted to mention it on the video, but uh, it's like, nah, no, it's not worth it because there's so many things that are wrong with it that it's almost not worth your while. Um, but, hey, you know, maybe if you if you enjoy it as an interesting read, obviously just take it with, with yeah. huge flakes I do, of I do I do want to say uh, Owen uh, Nylance mentioned earlier, uh, asked about uh, the enclosure movement, uh, post adam smith um and god that would have been we should we should have really addressed that do we have time all right all right all right this is, uh, let me have a look where where did he where did he say it uh he says i'm surprised in the adam smith discussion earlier that the enclosure movement was not addressed which uh, when common land was sold to the rich pushing people from the countryside to the factories Okay, let me have a look. Which this is a great part about talking about both Adam Smith and also the development of northern countries, especially uh, I, I can just attest to uh, England with the enclosure uh, movements. Uh, so for those unaware, uh, the idea of private property for the longest time in human history is was not a thing. It was there was the idea of the commons. Uh, in which everyone could graze and everyone could harvest resources from. Uh, the enclosure movement was the uh, ideal, uh, idealization of um, a person owning a plot of land and owning that and having exclusive domain over those the rights of, of those lands, meaning no one else could come and, and forage on those lands. No one could hunt game on those lands and no one could extract minerals from those lands. Um, and now one of the things that, uh, Owen brings up is that when, when the commons were, were dissolved, uh, it meant people who couldn't, who couldn't afford to purchase the private rights to the commons, uh, were subsequently without work because they could not, uh, harvest or they could not, um, you know, work the land without paying rent. And if they couldn't afford the rent, then now they're really at a loss um so they worked they went uh to find new work and it just so happened that there were these new things called factories which got up and running and offered what seemed to be stable employment and you know uh rather than doing back back breaking labor in the sun you did back breaking labor in a building making these things and it paid i mean can't say paid well by modern standards but it paid and for most people who are just trying to get by it was oh this was super convenient yeah it made it it made it worthwhile so um so, yeah, yeah whether that whether apologize that, the, uh, that we didn't get to 
Yeah. Yeah, I think it would have been a good discussion. But you know, I'm sure we'll have uh, an opportunity to talk about it in the in the future. Um, but as for now, that is all we have time for. So thanks to everyone that had these really fantastic questions. They do help the um, the conversation go on. Um, and of course, thanks to to all of our panelists that came on here and and had you know really interesting um, you know points. And they weren't sort of necessarily afraid to, to disagree, which is which is great because no one learns anything if you um, just get along and agree on absolutely every point that you ever make. Uh, but outside of that, we will hopefully see you all um, next week with the uh, next Q&A session, uh, as well as tomorrow for the video um, that is is going up then, which should be uh, which should be really interesting as well. Um, outside of that, I'll uh, let you all go. Cheers, guys. Bye. All right. Have a good one.